Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining me today for another episode of the Out of the Question podcast. You know, I recall a story that my dad, who was a general practitioner, told me about one of his patients. She was a middle-aged woman who was overweight and had committed to do something about it. So he gave her a diet. She was supposed to write down what she ate. This time it looked like she was going to really stick with it. However, she made an appointment with him and went face to face. He could see that she was really upset. She told him, I've been following the diet just as we agreed. And no matter what I do, I'm not only not losing weight, I'm gaining weight. My father had his suspicions and ran a couple of tests and returned to tell her that she was about four months pregnant. It never dawned on her that her problem really wasn't what she thought it was. When she received a correct diagnosis, she was much happier than when she came in. Well, in today's world, Many believers are distraught and concerned that no matter what they do, things seem to be getting worse and worse. And as a result, they come up with their own diagnoses that often don't satisfy or rectify the situation and, in fact, aren't the real cause. My guest today is Ron Kranz, a pastor and the author of two books that I know of. One is called Fighting to Win and other things I didn't learn in Sunday school. And the other is the book I have invited him to come on the podcast and discuss, and that's entitled The Beast, The Whore, and The Forgotten Vision. I first heard of Ron and the books when Chalcedon Vice President Martin Selbredi said, why haven't you interviewed Ron Kronz? And I'm like, well, I don't know who Ron Kronz is. And so I immediately went out and got the books and uh, these are books that, well, let's put it this way. Sometimes dinner isn't prepared on time because I'm busy reading, marking up the book, putting exclamation points on it. But Martin Selbredi describes it as one of the most important books of our day because it provides an integrated view of biblical application, moving theology out of the realm of theory into practice. So, when we want to pursue a remedy or explanation, we need to know what the nature of the problem is. And the question I've posed today is, is it time for a better diagnosis? Ron, thanks for joining me today. It's my absolute pleasure, Andrea. Thank you for having me. You know, well, you're welcome. So, you know, I started off with my analogy of how people can think this is what's wrong, but really something else is going on. First, let's explore the idea of what do you think most Christians believe at this point is our problem? Why are we in the state we're in? Yikes. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that we believe that the, the earth is the devil's and the fullness thereof. And at least we do that functionally. We may say that all authority belongs to Christ and so forth and so on, and that he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. As, as the Bible tells us, we have, to con- we have to acknowledge that, give an assent to that, 
but we really don't see that in its present form. We still concede everything. That we concede most of what uh, most of what goes on in society over to the devil, and so therefore we consider this to just be part of God's great backwards redemptive plan, where He wins at the end, kind of thing. Right, but not in the middle. <laughs> never in the middle. Never in time. Never in time in history. And and I see this from the front row, if you will when doing uh, street evangelism or especially anti-abort type work. When we do that stuff, one of the chief things that I'll get from uh, the, the haters is, uh, why don't you go back to your church or why don't you go or go home? And they have this reasonable expectation that Christians will leave Christ out of the marketplace, that, that, that we should we should go home and, and and I think that's on our watch. It is on our watch that the world has gotten comfortable with a Jesus who has no authority. Okay, so that's the wrong diagnosis. So I asked, is it time for a better diagnosis, or I could say a correct diagnosis? What do you think the issue really is? Yeah, that truncated idea of the gospel is that the gospel is for salvation, uh, escape, uh, to live, uh, to turn you into a reasonably nice person who pays their taxes, who's obedient uh, to the to the civil government on all affairs, uh, those kind of things. It's, it's limited to that realm, which is, and, and one other thing about that, Andrea, um, this prospect of neutrality, uh, this myth, if you will, of m- neutrality, has really, really opened the door for a for for a world of trouble. So, there's a phrase in your book that I think is really pointed. It says, "Everything that the church fails to claim for the kingdom of God will be looted by humanist governors." Yes, let's yeah, flesh I- that out. I, I, yeah, I stand by that. And in fact, we see it in, in the, in the culture of Christianity. Back to the idea of neutrality. We believe that Jesus is in charge, that the Bible isn't a science book. You'll hear that. The Bible isn't a medical book. And so God has nothing to say about those things. Well, of course he does. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But because we've seeded these things off to being uh, acts of neutrality, we have ensuingly trusted, actually trusted the, the outside forces, and, uh, people other than Christ to govern those things. And you see that with the way the church so readily shut down during during the pandemic. And, right. and the, we just, we didn't go to our Bibles. We didn't look at the law of God and see what is, what God does. And when we have an outbreak, we, and there is, there is stuff, scripture has stuff, we just uniformly shut down, which is just a, just a terrible response, but sort of a predictable one. And I, I should note to my listeners that your book, The Beast, the Whore, and The Forgotten Vision was written during the pandemic. So what you're talking about and the observations that you make are very pertinent to right now. 
That's exactly right. And in the previous book, uh, Things I Didn't Learn, Fighting to Win and Things I Didn't Learn in Sunday School, I talked about Christ feeding the 5,000 and the, the, the disciples are looking, they've, they've been listening to Christ teaching presumably all day and everybody's tired and they go to Christ with this prospect. They say the people are tired, send them away. They're tired and hungry. Send them away that they may buy and get something to eat. And that's sort of been the program of the church is we will, we'll teach you sanctified stained glass kind of things. But then when it comes to medicine, science, education, we, we send them away. And then we act, so, and then we clutch our pearls and surprise that the pagans take, take over those things from a pagan point of view. Right. I would say that most believers don't think health, education, welfare, governing are really in their toolbox that what we're supposed to do is pray. And the least we get in or the less we get involved in these worldly things, the more sanctified we are. Exactly. Or at best, um, if we do get involved in these worldly things, politics, education, and the like, that's a special calling. That's some, that's some special anointing that you have. When in fact, Christ gives the command, he says, they don't need to go away. You'll give them something to eat. And of course, he's seeking, that has to come through him. He's seeking to ground all things on himself rather than to send things away. And once we send it away, the just the just basic theology should teach us that it's not going to go into a good place. You don't give we're talking with fallen mankind. You're turning over medicine and science and the like and all these so-called extraneous things to people who hate Christ. Exactly. Exactly. So there are so many areas, whether it's in political situations or it's uh, science and the various aspects of it, where we have this view that says everybody knows that. And then when you ask the question, well, why is it that everybody knows that? And they'll point to certain people. And as you said, they're God haters. And when given an opportunity, they will mock Christ and they will blaspheme and they will look at uh, believers as second class because they're just not that smart. And so what happens is I see that a lot of believers will cede these areas to them so that they'll be deemed respectable. Yes, that's exactly right. Definitely. So your book, you know, on first glance, The Beast, the Whore, and the Forgotten Vision. Oh, this is a book about eschatology and end times because look at these images. But I must say you are a direct communicator. I'm not sure that your primary goal was to make people feel good when they read this book. And so share a little bit about the title and what your main thrust is, what you're attempting to communicate. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an excellent question. What got this started? When I started, I wasn't setting out to write a book. I had just written a book, uh, year prior, and I was done writing for the time being, or so I thought. And I was doing an outreach with uh, with our church, a street outreach, and at a lull in the activity, 
another elder asked me, he said, what do you think, where do you think everything went wrong? Now there's a loaded question. You know, <laughs> where, where did everything go wrong? And he did, we can see that things have gone wrong, but when did it happen? And I was, I kind of stumbled around and I thought, well, maybe it was, cele- you know, the advent of celebrity pastors or money or music and the liberal agenda and so forth and so on. But I really couldn't pinpoint what happened, why things had gone wrong. And so I started to trace back and said, well, I need to be able to give a good answer to this guy. He's an elder of mine. And this is pertinent. It's, a, it's on his mind. And as I traced back, I was sort of hoping and looking for there to be some date on the calendar that if we could get back to some Rockwellian age, you know, where we could get back to. And, 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 and we could all go back to sipping iced tea on the, on, on the front porch and, and, and so forth and so on. And that's not what I found. I found a history of retreat and defeat through really almost the entirety of our, our nation and prior. And as I trace, and so I started writing a paper and the paper then became a, uh, I found myself a 30,000 words. And I said, no, I've, I've got myself, I've got another book on my hand. So I felt like I needed to address how we, how we got here. And in the middle of that, has been poor eschatology. There's just no way around it. I was invited to be a part of a dispensationalist group. And so I kind of follow this group and see what they talk about. And they openly, openly discourage marriage, childbearing, education, starting businesses. Well, what do we think that in the absence of us doing those things, what do you think the pagans are going to do? They're going to fill that hole. And so my position on the on, on this book has been said, look at how far we have retreated, how culturally we are retreated, and begin rebuilding from where we are, saying, okay, that was then, this is a long line of escapist, retreatist, defeatist, legalist, pietistic, caricatures that are called Christianity. And that, so that's why we're here is because of that, that history. And so we need to rebuild on a biblical, from a biblical standpoint, that's basically, that's it in a nutshell. Okay. Now, some people would be surprised that you said from the history of our country, because there's this, um, I don't know, call it a Pollyanna view that things were great in the fifties or things that were great in the founding era and the founding fathers, you know, all agreed on everything and they were stalwart Christians, unless you're on the other side that says, no, they really weren't Christians. They were something else, but we have this tendency to glorify the past. Uh, Even you'll hear people talking about the early church as if the early church had no problems. I think modern day Christians would shrink at what the first century Christians had to go through. Exactly. That's right. No, that, that, that's exactly right. And, and yes, that nostalgia actually Rush Dooney writes about that. Of course, you know, that uh, writes about that tendency to go backwards and look nostalgically at the past, by the way, an anecdote about that. I have a friend in Uganda. I have for years, ministered uh, overseas and uh, in, in South and Central Africa. I've got a friend in Uganda 
And he has made the note, now they have tribal languages while they're speaking English. They have hundreds of tribal languages. So he's forever meeting people who have another language that he's never heard of. And so he always asked them this question, what is the word for future in your mother tongue? And he has yet to find anybody who has that word in their mother tongue. It's a concept that's distinctly Christian. And so pushing forward, and so when we abandon the future to some notion that the world is getting ready to catch on fire, and that we should not, as one had said, polish brass on the sinking ship. When we, when we take that position, we actually do perhaps the most unloving thing possible, which is abandon the world of the light of Christ. Okay, so the imagery of your title goes back to images that appear in all of the Bible, Old and New Testament, but specifically in some of the prophetic writings uh, prior to Christ, and then, of course, the book of Revelation. So just for clarification, how do you define the beast, and how do you define the whore? Okay, the beast is the overstepping state, uh, the the civil government that seeks to replace Christ. Uh, And the whore is the church that goes along with that. And you see it played out perhaps most graphically at the uh, in most perhaps ultimate sense in uh, the trial of Christ when Pilate presents Christ, behold your king. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. And that's, that's a, that depicts the beast and the whore right there. We have no king but Caesar. And so here fast forward 2,000 years. And Anthony Fauci says, you better, your governor says, you better shut your churches down. You need to shut them down. And the Lord says, don't forsake the gathering of the saints. And we say again, we have no king but Caesar. That's the beast. That's the whore. Yeah. See, I told you guys who were listening at the beginning, he wasn't going to be giving you a happy, clappy kind of diagnosis here. But as going through the book, there are a number of images that um and, and descriptions that when i read uh, to be honest the the reaction was ouch you know he he just stuck me there and one of the images that you give and i think this is really um an excellent description is the church currently being more like campers than being like soldiers explain what you meant by that there's a history lesson that that undergirded that McClellan was the uh, general of the army of the the Potomac at the beginning of the civil war. And he absolutely refused to go out and fight. He he camped around, he camped around uh, Alexandria. And probably you may remember that from your time in DC and in a place called Del Rey. And he just stayed there. And finally Abraham Lincoln fired him. Uh, because he wouldn't fight. I think he said something to the effect, if General McClellan does not want to use the army, I would like to borrow them for a time. And right. I can almost hear Christ saying the same thing of his church is, do you want to, you want to go out and do something? You want to, you want to get engaged or not? And the reason I use that analogy is because I also 
run a tree service in the D.C. area. And so I serviced that area. And so all the trees uh, of antiquity were cut down so McClellan could burn. You know, his army had they needed they needed warmth and they needed to cook. And so they cut down all the trees. So we don't have any old trees in that part of Alexandria because we're covenantally suffering from McClellan's refusal to engage. And so I liken that today to today's society is we have such a history of refusing to engage. We're bearing that, we're bearing that out. And I think I might have said in that passage there's a distinction between campers. Campers don't produce anything. They just sort of sit there and use up the land. They're not farmers. They're not, they're not doing anything. They don't fight. They don't farm. They don't do much of anything. And in that sense, that typifies the culture of Christianity. Yeah, the image was because, I mean, I know a lot of people who like to camp. Um, camping is a, you know, a, a summer activity and all, but it's, almost like pretending to rough it, although I'm sure there are various degrees of people will actually go out and, you know, abandon the comforts of home. But there's always this idea that you could come back to it as opposed to being called to a fight that an army, uh, uh, soldiers aren't, shouldn't be thinking about, I want to, I'm looking for my next respite or vacation. They would look at the task at hand and what's the objective. And so in a lot of ways, if we were to ask Christians, what's your objective here and now? I'm not sure many would give an answer that would be scriptural. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I see that in the world of, uh, of short-term mission trips, for instance. I, I run into them all the time in Africa. And they've got their, their, they're there and, and it's a camping trip. And they're, they're out there and they're there for two weeks and they've raised funds and they're going to love the people whatever that means. And they don't take on any of the, the, the idolatry in Africa. They don't deal with animism and ancestral worship or any such thing. And they just, they just kind of go basically do what they were doing in the United States, but do it in Africa. And, and, and it's, a, it's a dysfunctional, dysfunctional system. And it's reaping, by the way, we're reaping, uh, we're bearing the fruit also of that, of years of of that kind of retreating. So going back to the idea of when the church doesn't do what God has commanded it to do, there's a vacuum. And then there are more than enough people in groups that want to fill that vacuum. It's almost as though they understand the great commission more than a lot of believers do. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, they have the dominion mandate is, is hardwired into our into our DNA. We will want to take dominion. Uh, theirs is a domination one and ours is a dominion one. And our approach, of course, is very different. But I, I absolutely could not agree more is that they are more dutiful in pressing the rights of their king than we are in pressing the rights of, of our king. But I, I should say quickly, I should interject that uh, by the way, I know you're, you're you go way way back with Rush Dooney, and 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 I think that's fabulous. And one of the things that I've gotten from Rush Dooney that's just as clear, crystal clear, is the certainty of the failure of the enemies of Christ in time and history. 
Mm-hmm. It's a very important thing to, because you can look at all this and say, well, what are we going to do? I mean, it's just a train wreck. It's a, the, the world is, is in an uproar. We've gone mad. Well, yeah, that's true, but that's going to have to resolve. And God is still going to raise up people who are going to press forward the rights of Christ. And he's, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to put words in the Lord's mouth, but you can almost say that he's anxious to do it. He, I don't want to ascribe anxiety to him, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? There's an, he is ready and willing. And, and, and I, I just want to read a little bit of scripture here that'll make that point. And I, I cited this in the book in the third chapter of Judges it, it, in the 12th verse, it says, and the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered uh, to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of the Palm. So the children of Israel served Eglon of Moab, king of Moab, 18 years. This would have been horrible. This would have been, we don't, because of our Western lifestyle that has been impressed by Christianity, we have no way to imagine how horrible it was for them. But then the next phrase, but when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. There's no probationary period. There's no delay. As soon as they sought the Lord, immediately he raises up a deliverer. And I think there's a strong confidence that we should have in the future work based on verses like that. So let me comment on that because I I found that compelling. Um, It's also true that when uh, the Hebrews were being required to make bricks without straw, and it became obvious that Pharaoh wanted to kill their male children, it says that they called out to the Lord. And I've become more and more convinced, especially over the last, I don't know, five or six years, that God is jealous of what belongs to him. Therefore, if we almost get it right, that's not good enough for God. So having a candidate or having a leader who's right on three out of 10 things, but that's better than being right on zero out of 10 things. God wants us to have the standard that he put forth. And I I think this is probably your forgotten vision part of your title that until we recognize that it will be through God and his law and his ways that there will be salvation on any front until then, I don't think God's unwilling to let us stew in our own juice. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. And and that shows itself up. Again, if, if you follow me at all, you know that I'm pretty deep into the world of anti-abortion. And the truth of the matter is, is that numerous times we've had the, the numbers, if you will, We've had all three branches of the civil government and have still not made abortion illegal, child sacrifice in our land. And uh, that tyranny goes on because we have not required of our rulers to be servants of the Lord. We've taken, if they're better than Hillary Clinton, 
That's right. like enough. And, 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 and in that sense, not only has child sacrifice continued, but it's, it's, it's actually become culturally normative in our culture because not because of the pro-death people, but because of the pro-life people who accept all sorts of things that, I mean, in Indiana, they had a, uh, a, a pro-life uh, legislation that successfully uh, had it that, I mean, let me get this right, had it that uh, a, 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 a dead baby could receive a good funeral. What, what kind of justice is that? A, right. a baby, you can kill the baby. Kill the baby anytime you want, but you got to give them a good, decent funeral. That's not justice. And but those have been pro-life legislative efforts. And so you're I, you're spot on, Andrea. We've got to make the law of God the standard, and to appreciate what justice is. Uh, I, I think one of the the best things that. Dr. Russ Juni's teaching was for me is that when Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that the word righteousness could easily and just as accurately be replaced by justice. And that gives a different flavor to the whole thing because justice, as you said, isn't burying murdered individuals and giving them a nice send off. Where were we before they were killed? Yes, exactly right. And I, I made this point. It was a group in our home last night uh, seeking to abolish uh, abortion in the state of Virginia, seeking to put a, a bill forward. And I asked this question. I, I, I put this out. I'll put it out for our listeners here. If you were a Martian, came to Earth, and there was you were here just a month. You're just hanging in and blending in with the normal culture. There would be absolutely no evidence that babies are being murdered, that 20,000 babies are being murdered a week. You would have no evidence of that. Why? Why is there no evidence of that? It's because we've been content to live at coexist with that kind of brutality. And so, yeah, Whereas the, to your back to your point over in Psalms 89, righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. And certainly I don't need to tell your listeners, we are hardwired, as I had said earlier, to seek righteousness and justice. But if we do not seek them on his terms, Christ's terms, on the terms of, of the triune God, we will, those things will be perverted and turned into absurdity and tyranny and abuse. Right. And then we'll just be arguing which candidate is less tyrannical as opposed to which candidate is righteous and just before God. That's it. And, and, and anecdotally, I was a friend of mine and I went to one of the Black Lives Matters marches in D.C., uh, I, one of the benefits of living in D.C. or in that vicinity is that we, we have home team advantage. You know, we, when all the marches come, we can go out and talk to people and, and, and do outreaches. It's very, very effective, I think, very fruitful. And I, we were at this march, and my, the theme of my preaching was that, is that you'll notice that 
you're seeking for, why are you seeking for justice? Why do you want righteousness? What do you want justice for George Floyd? You know, why, why aren't sharks swimming for justice for George Floyd or dogs doing that? Well, it has to do with the image in whom you have been made. And, and actually, Black Lives Matters people, there was a group of Black Lives Matters people who were connecting with this idea, but it was able to, sh- you know, we have our, we have scoffers, and that's just part and parcel of that kind of work. But people were able to connect the idea that unless we place as the standard Christ and his and, and his his standard for righteousness and justice, we will just keep changing seats on the Titanic and go from one abuse to another. And one of the things that I think is interesting, and I'm sure you encounter this and you can comment on that, is that when you're presenting a faithful biblical message, you don't fit into Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, because there are many of Christ's mandates that offend just about everybody. And so I think if you do engage people and you get to these bedrock issues that you're in a much better position to have them listen to you because they don't think you're advocating for one of the popular positions of the day. Yeah, that's, uh, I can, I, I can see that. Uh, and when I talk to politicians, I've done a little bit of lobbying. When I talk to politicians, pro-life lobbyists, their default is back to more righteous than the bad guy, the bad guy being the Democrats. And so I, but I, this is my opinion. It's my experience though, is that people are largely disenfranchised with politicians in the United States. And so something fresh is, is, and there's a reason it's left them, it's left them empty. It's left them still hungering for something that's actually righteous. Right. There is the desire for justice. And so I'm not surprised that at the core of a lot of people who we might say they're wrong, they're wrong. They may be wrong in their practice, just like there are a lot of Christians who have this desire to see things be right, but they're also wrong in their diagnosis and their treatment for the problem is if we can get to the bedrock issue with somebody and build from there, then all the stereotypes can go away. Yeah, I agree. So you made a comment in the book that with churches closing, you thought that, you know, now that the leadership of churches didn't exactly have the same duties they had before that you would see a greater presence of Christians outside abortion clinics, basically offering the biblical view of what's going on here and why it's wrong. But that wasn't your experience. You didn't see more Christians, more pastors showing up. Yeah, that was, that was my, it was really an indictment. I didn't expect that. Um, uh, those who are born square don't die round. You know, you, you, you kind of finish the way you start. If you're not on the foundation of Christ, if you're not, if you, if you, if, if you won't preach the gospel without money, you won't preach the gospel with money. If you want, you know, it's, it's not a conditional thing, but I was just observing that, okay, we are, we're shut down now. We're all shut down. There's nobody can go. 
to church. Nobody can go anywhere but to exercise or whatever nebulous thing that the government uh, uh, permitted us to do. And and yet here the sidewalks in front of the abortion mill are still empty and the public square is still empty. And I asked the question rhetorically, I don't remember how I asked it, but I asked the question rhetorically, where are all these pastors with all that time on their hands? Where where are they? There's the sidewalks are empty, a devoid of the preaching of the gospel. And, and part of that, Andrea, was uh, in, re- in reply to what I frequently hear from pastors and elders when I challenge them to be involved in, say, politics or, or the broader kingdom building activities of getting involved with businesses and education and that kind of thing. They will say, and this is, they'll say it rhetorically, almost like they're regurgitating it. They will say, we just preach the gospel. And so I'm wondering, where are they? Because I'm not running into them just preaching the gospel. Right. Again, this is probably going to offend some people, but I don't think, you know, you're a street preacher, so you're probably used to not being consumed with, does everybody (laughs) like you? Is it fair to say that significant portions of the church are engaged in harlotry with the beast, with the state? I would say that that's the norm. So in other words, you'd have to find exceptions to that rather than find examples of that. Yes, there are. I mean, there's God has promised us that there will always be a remnant and there'll always be people. And I'm not going to try to pry my fingers in the Lamb's book of life and determine who's saved and who's not saved. It's 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 not that. Uh, in one of the dead churches in the book of Revelation, I don't remember which one it was, uh, it, the Lord says, you have a few even there who've not defiled their garments. And so they're believers. That's not what's in question. I'm talking about the fabric, the backdrop of Christianity is a compromised one, a deeply compromised one. Again, ask. let's ask the question a different way. How much would God pour out his blessings on us if we were as dutiful to follow the law of God as we are the law of men? So hearing that question, and obviously the answer would be he would hear, you know, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and forsake their sin, you know, I'll, I'll visit them. I'll redeem, I'll heal their land. So the scripture tells us the answer to that. But I think it's very easy and convenient for people to say the church, the church should be doing this. And they mean the pastors, they mean the deacons, they mean the elders. And they've missed the idea that it's an an indictment on all of us who claim the name of Christ. Do we engage in harlotry, seeking the approval and the benefits of the state and not risk our position or security because, you know, if you rock the boat, then life gets unpleasant. Yeah, that is, I think that's just a reflection of our, our status background. It's not just that it's, it's not just that we are waiting for the governor to tell us what to do. The governor of Virginia or the governor of Maryland or, or wherever it's, it's, 
we are also waiting that bleeds itself over into church matters where we're waiting for the pastor to tell us what to do. And that's a breakdown. I think I addressed it in that book. I think it was in that book I addressed it, the different types of government. It's a breakdown of self-government. People just are unable to govern themselves. So we're just waiting for the pastor to tell us what to do. It's just an extension of the breakdown of self-government and certainly family government as well. The tendency is to blame someone else and be comfortable in our own unfaithfulness. But you take a good amount of time in this book to talk about what valor is and what it means to be valiant as opposed to be cautious, as opposed to be a spectator. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I found that little passage in a, uh, one of the genealogies of all things. You don't think you're going to get a sermon out of a genealogy, but it's, uh, it, and it talks about these men who were valiant. And he started looking into that trade. And the valiant man or woman is most marked by a willingness to do what other people don't want to do. That's really the mark. And I think that one of the examples I gave was when I got into, uh, when I got into the anti-abort work, I suddenly, I was been doing it a very short period of time and I was regarded as a leader. And I thought, why am I a leader? Well, because I, I'm so rare is why. And valiant people are, that they're marked in that, that inner courage to go where the Lord has told us to do, say what he says, answer to him. And, uh, and of course, that plays itself all the way to the cross of Jesus Christ, who's the, the, the epitome of valor. If I were to impose that onto the culture of the way we do Christianity, what about your Christian experience? Uh, let me just ask this rhetorically kind of to the listeners. What about your Christian experience requires valor of you? And the, the answer is generally nothing. Is that we vacuumed that off the table. We, we've kept it. Safety has been the key. That's been the, that's been the, uh, people ask me, well, if I go to the abortion mill with you, will it be safe? Maybe not. I don't know. You might get arrested, you know, but that's been safety has been God and safety is the, is the idol of those who are uh, refusing to be valiant. You look at the historical account of what happened to all of Jesus's apostles who when he was arrested, most of them ran away, that all of them, with the exception of John, you know, died a martyr's death, died at the hands of either the Jewish religious leaders or the state. And so safety was not their primary concern. They weren't looking to be rescued. They were looking to be found faithful. Yes. Right. And those are the guys we always remember. You know, those are the guys we talk about. We talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, 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 and the, the martyrs. We talk about Tyndale. We talk about these guys. We talk about Latimer and Ridley. We're still talking about those guys. Right. We don't talk about the guys who stayed home and didn't want to get involved. You see it in uh, the 11th chapter of uh, Hebrews. And 
and you see all these great victories. I mean, you see this awesome stuff, but under, behind that, you see people who are suffering, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward, of course, speaking of uh, Moses. But then later, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And it goes on to say that they, through faith, they subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, Uh, The strong became valiant in battle. They became strong, valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. And in others, you see not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And talks of mockings and scourgings and stoning and being sawn in two. And all of these things, these victories and these risks kind of go hand in hand. And it's not that that God has run out of victory in 2022. It's not that. It's that there's a faithfulness that's lacking from God's people who will joining the welcome team at the church or the softball team at the church. How does that stack up? When you read the 11th chapter of Hebrews, and then you go to Joe Splivy Community Church, and you look at that church, how do those two look alike at all? Well, you generally do not, which is why we don't have the victories we, we should be having. And, you know, you go through the chapter of the 11th chapter of Hebrews, and it would be a smart idea to go back to the accounts that are being referenced there, that God didn't always use the people who felt strong. I mean, Gideon wanted to make sure, double sure, this is what you want me to do. So Gideon has his fleece test and God honors that. But there are plenty of other people and you you cite Ehud uh, under the oppression and the tyranny of Eglon who would have been just as happy not to do it, but then he becomes convicted that God's law is being disobeyed. And, and I think too few people are experiencing any sort of anxiety, anguish, or frustration when they see God's law disobeyed in their homes, in their churches, in their in the civil realm or whatever. Psalm 119 says David's heart is broken when he sees God's law disobeyed. So we need to come back to that to realize that it doesn't matter what we want. It matters what God wants. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and what... What people are bothered with is personal discomfort. Now, you'll get that with conservative Christians, and I'm a conservative Christian. Conservative Christians will are uncomfortable with the homosexual agenda, but they're just personally uncomfortable with it. They're not. There's there's a whole difference in being offended because God has been offended, and you see it in the 17th chapter of Acts. When Paul waited for them at Athens, the Bible says his spirit was provoked within him that he saw that the city was given over to idols. Paul wasn't suffering anything personally. There wasn't anything being taken from him at that time. He could not abide the idolatry in his midst. And that's what that's what this book is talking about. The forgotten vision is reinstating that the provoked spirit of somebody who loves Christ, 
enough to hate what he hates and love what he loves and and do something about it. And it's in that it's in that context that Paul can't keep silent. Right. Everybody's got a vision of the future in some way, shape, or form. Some a very short-term view, some it'll all pan out in the end. I don't have to worry about it. But I've run into most recently a lot of sincere believers who did not bow the knee and say, okay, we'll stay home. They showed up and they they had fellowship with one another and they're recognizing the overreach and moving outside the jurisdiction that the civil government has done. However, they still hold to a view that they're not going to experience bad times because they're going to be rescued. And a funny part about that is, what if you're in the middle of bad times, but you're, you're thinking that bad times have to be worse than this? Speak to the, the people who, whose vision includes God is going to take us out of this and the church is going to be absent from the earth. And then somehow or other, it's all going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'm, I'm post bail, you know, so it's a, the, I, I find that and I appreciate the sincerity of individuals who who did take a stand and said, "No, the government isn't isn't God, uh, and we the state isn't God, and we're we're not gonna we're going to defy this." But still, somehow, will escape. The Bible doesn't give that as an offering. Jesus Christ says, uh, "In the world, you will." In the world, you'll, there will be tribulation, but be of good courage. I've overcome the world. It's, there's not a Pollyanna picture being painted. By, through many tribulations, we inherit the kingdom of God, the Bible says. Uh, we, we enter, rather, we enter the kingdom of God. There's, there's no way around that. The matter of suffering isn't something to be sought uh, it's more the result of just faithfulness, but that's well within God's providence. I do not accept that notion that God is just going to rescue us out at the last minute, and then, then there's going to be all these things happening. I think there's a future after after destruction. You see that in the book of Exodus. You see, I mean, can you imagine um, what it would have been like to be a Hebrew and the Exodus? What did every dispensationalist in Exodus would have been saying? This is the worst it's ever been. It's never going to get better than this. And yet God was on the precipice of delivering them, taking them out of the hand of their oppressor and bringing them into, had they been faithful, the Canaan the, uh, conquest. And so, yeah, I, I don't, I, I, it's through tribulation. He did not spare them. Many of those plagues that that affected Pharaoh and Egypt, affected the Hebrews. They had to understand that it wasn't because they were special. It's because God is sovereign. And I often comment that you can't walk through the Red Sea unless you're at the Red Sea. And I imagine it was quite scary. You know, (laughs) you have the sea parting and somehow or other, the sea is held back on either side and you're walking through. So I don't imagine it was a nice stroll. I can see myself walking rather quickly <laughs> to get to the other side. So it's this idea that God wants us to have a safe, calm, 
uh, you put it in the book that people are much more willing to gravitate towards Psalm 23 rather than Psalm 2. That's true. And yeah, and but that needs to change as we do know about the Lord being my shepherd and I shall not want. We've got that memorized and, and, and verses that pertain to our well-being and, and safety. But what of the glory of Christ in Psalm 2? It says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Look at the unity there together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds and pieces and cast away their cords from us. But what, do, how does God respond? He's not wringing his hands. He's not worried about it. It's the contrary. He says, he who sits in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. And so we have no view of the conquering. We, the risen conquering Jesus Christ, just we have a risen rescuing Jesus Christ. Right. And when you think about it, we all go through things we don't like. Some of us have experienced worse things than others with the shutdown or illness, because many families have been affected by death from whatever cause during this time. But what does it say about how we're required to trust God that he sits in the heavens, looks down, and isn't worried. So we're wringing our hands. We're concerned. What is this guy going to do? Who's going to be elected? What are they going to do with my money? What are they going to do with my job? Do they force me to get something I don't want to get? And then to have to reconcile it with, as you just said, God is not wringing his hands. He's there. So he must have something in mind instead of God having to change, which he doesn't, we have to change. Exactly. And it and has to do with our positioning with God and the way we look at things. Uh, over in the fourth chapter of Revelation, the Lord calls his man up, John up. He says, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will I will show you things which must take place after this. And then he shows him a picture of redemptive history and the judgments that occur. But he sees, but the backdrop is one that's distinctly centered on the Lord. Uh, and, and, and if you ever want doxology, just go to the fourth and fifth chapter of Revelation. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Later on, you were worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you, re- you created all things and by your will they exist and were created and on we go you were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have re- slain and have redeemed us to god by your blood and on and on and so it's in that perspective of going to the throne room where the door is open where we look down through god's perspective at, at history and see the victorious nature and we see then from that position that as Isaiah said, the nations are as dust on the scales. There is nothing. And so that's where we get our confidence. But we've gotten too used to looking at the enemy. A friend of mine says, this is kind of a colloquial saying, you probably have heard it, uh, that, that everybody, when they were running away from Goliath, were thinking, he's so big, how can I fight him? And David said, he's so big, how can I miss? Right, right. So we, 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 we have the, 
sort of the question that hangs in the air is, is that you brought up is, are our spirits provoked? Are we just wanting to be rescued? Are we just wanting personal favor? Well, that's no different than the pagans. The pagans want to be rescued. The pagans want personal safety. The pagans want good health. The pagans want, if you were to go, this is a bit of an aside, but uh, indulge me this. If you were to go to your midweek, your average midweek gathering and and you have prayer requests, who, who wants to pray for who and all of that? And you listen to the prayer requests, they're no different than the desires of Muslims and Buddhists and Hare Krishnas. They, we all want, we want the same thing that they want, but the Christ, the Christ follower is, is distinct in that they want what Christ wants. So that why the Psalms become a very good starting point for prayer is that David, especially over and over, will talk about his desires, but then he defaults to, but your will, what you want, let me conform to you. And I think that, uh, we're in a very exciting time. I think, Ron, that as Christians, we have greater opportunities now because the comfort zone has become decidedly smaller and everybody you talk to has some complaint about something. So we have a, a great opportunity to get to, to the foundational issue that we must love the Lord our God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that's what is the remit is the prescription you might say for seeing victory right so the diagnosis is not that the world is getting worse and is spiraling out of control of god but that it's in its birth pangs and and that that it's that it's pregnant and redemption is at hand that's the better way of to tie back into your initial right uh, story, which is an excellent one we're in the birth pangs there's another deliverance coming there's more glory for christ there's more more kings to be taken i mean we, we just have to take him at his word that the knowledge of the glory of the lord will fill the the earth as the waters cover the sea either that's true or not and so we we just have to we have to understand that and labor to that end right and i i think you would probably agree it's very exciting to be in a time like this because if we understand the sovereignty of god that we were born when he determined we were to be born and we're not going to live a day less or a day more than he intends, then we can endeavor to be faithful and let God decide the outcome. So we're not responsible for the outcome. We're responsible to be faithful in our service to him. That's right. And and let me just be transparent about that. There is an element of Hezekiah and me who would be glad to miss out on, you know, the future trouble that may be coming. There is an element of me that that is in there, but that's not something, you know, what you feed grows. I don't feed that. I confess that to the Lord as that, uh, as I think the, the, the words of Nehemiah, uh, when he's exhorting the people, he says, remember the Lord great and awesome fight for your brethren. And so the, the, the temptation to want to escape, I, I'm not exempt from that. And I hope that nobody reading any of my literature thinks that I'm on some ivory tower and that these things don't, that, that I don't want to get away from trouble. I do want to get away from trouble, 
but I've taken my claim. I've staked my claim daily in Christ and make my decisions based upon that. Amen. That's a good place to close out our discussion. Ron, I'm sure there are going to be people who say, I need to know more about this guy. (laughs) How can listeners find out more other than I highly recommend both books, Fighting to Win and other things I didn't learn in Sunday school and The Beast, The Whore and The Forgotten Vision. Where might they find you to get additional insight into things you're doing, the perspectives you hold, et cetera? Yeah, be delighted. Uh, and thank you for that. I, I can be reached at ronkrons.com. My name, R-O-N-K-R-O-N-Z.com. You can get me there and contact with me. I'm ha- always happy to indulge and listen to questions and, and critique and all of that stuff. I, I'm, I'm be very accessible to people there. And you do have a presence on social media? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm out there. Yeah, I'm out there. I have a I have a robust version of friends. That I, I'm not very well. Uh, uh, you know, Facebook wants to put you in uh, in categories, and so I've I've got this wide variety of friends. People, Facebook keeps asking me if I live in Lubumbashi and the DR Congo. I've spent so much time there, so <laughs> so it's it's a wide variety. My following is is wide and some of them are French speakers. And, and so, but yeah, I'm, I'm out. Well, very good. Again, thanks for uh, taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me and have a good week. Okay. Yes. And listeners, you can always reach us at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.